Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 24, One Fish, Street Fighter 2 Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go, shave when we shave, eat poison when we eat poison. And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 11, One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish, which originally aired on January 24th, 1991, a two-week gap from the last episode. And it's a big change to what I'd usually be talking about this week. You may remember a while ago that Gareth said he'd like to do a beat-em-up show. Well, I'm going to be going over the history of the video game Street Fighter 2, which was released in arcades on February 6th, 1991, two weeks after One Fish, Two Fish, blah, 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 was first aired. This could be my Christmas present, Tom. (laughs) If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, January 24th, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one at that time? Well, unfortunately, we go from metal royalty last week to royalty. It's Queen, with innuendo. And I'm reminded of our earlier talk about latter-day status quo when I say it's bloody awful. (laughs) I do, however, sort of have to give it a pass due to the waning powers of their iconic frontman, Freddie Mercury, who was very, very much dying of HIV-related health problems at the stage this was released. Tom, we don't usually discuss the historical happenings until the very last minute, so I do have to quickly ask, are you doing the death of Freddie Mercury? Um, I wasn't planning to, no. Okay. I've I've already talked about Queen when I was talking about South Africa, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think we've concluded our business there. I think so. uh, um, It does coincide with the broadcast of Flaming Moe's, so I thought (laughs) thought I'd better ask. Uh, I can freely tell you in that case that uh, Mercury would perish a mere ten months after Innuendo was at number one. So rather than being one of their more straightforward pop and rock Queen songs, you know, like a, a We Will Rock You or a Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which are all, you know, have their charms... Um, it's unfortunately one of their more ambitious affairs, which were always a bit hit and miss. Uh, unsurprisingly, its closest touchpoint is Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, in its use of different sections, themes, changes of mood, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably, it is half a minute longer than Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, my word. And just to be even more pretentious, Steve Howe plays some of the flamenco-inspired guitar on this. Howe is from those interminable prog rock noodlers, yes who are forgiven for later giving us the action-packed number 80s soft rock marvel that is owner of a lonely heart. (laughs) So, there's that. Uh, I'm embarrassed to have this on our new playlist, to be frank. I'd much rather have owner of a lonely heart. Yeah. Um, But I don't want to break my own rules within the first week of existence. Yeah. Uh, If anyone still wants to listen to the playlist, even though it's got uh, innuendo on it, it's on Spotify and you can find the link on our Twitter. It's got worse than that on it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't you worry about that. There's a brilliant run, though. There's a brilliant run. When you you hear uh, Dub Be Good To Me, you're in for a good few tracks. Yeah. Um, Check that out if you haven't already. The Retrospecticus playlist on Spotify. It's It's a wonderful journey through the late 80s and early 90s charts it's brilliant and it's only going to get well I was about to say it's only going to get better it's only going to get longer true true so uh, 
So there we go. Um, US viewership for this episode, uh, it was 27th in the ratings for the week. It had a Nielsen of 14.1, which is equivalent to 13 million households. Uh, it was the highest rated show on the Fox network that week, which isn't really a surprise at the time. Uh, the production number was 7F11, so all, all in order. The writer was Nell Scoville. Oh, bloody hell, it's only a new writer. Yeah. Who's this? It's been a fair while since I've done one of these. Yeah. So, um... Quick uh, guessing game for you. What university do you think Nell Scoville went to? <laughs> Harvard, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Um, Good at maths? Uh, well, that's not. Uh, that wasn't recorded where I was looking. There's a slight deviation in that uh, they wrote and edited the Harvard Crimson rather than the Harvard Lampoon. Ooh. Now, the Crimson is their daily student newspaper and then moved on to work at the sports desk at the Boston Globe before moving on to Spy Magazine and Vanity Fair. So far, so all journalism jobs. But moved into TV and first wrote for It's Gary Shandling's Show and would later write for Monk, Charmed, Coach, The Critic. Less of a surprise, that one. Uh, and Space Ghost Coast to Coast, amongst other shows. Um, and also for Vogue, Rolling Stone, Tatler and other publications. Nell has quite rightly spoken out about gender inequality in TV writing, which they specifically experienced on Late Night with David Letterman. And, let's face it, probably The Simpsons, being only the second female-identified credited writer after Mimi Pond, mm. who wrote season one, episode one, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. And Sam Simon's still kicking around at this point, so... Uh... Yes, and he, he, was, uh, he was very much a bro-only uh, writing room kind of guy. Uh, these experiences are doubtlessly referenced in uh, Nell's 2018 book, Just the Funny Parts and a Few Hard Truths About Sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. The chalkboard gag, which we particularly appreciated, was I Will Not Cut Corners, followed by many, many ditto marks. <laughs> in the spirit of that, we'll be referring to this episode as One Fish, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, the couch gag is the couch tips over backwards and Maggie pops up from behind it. Mm -hmm. So what happens? Well, after enduring an endless wait of eight seconds for their microwave meatloaf, the Simpsons sit down for dinner. But Lisa's ennui at Thursday's never-ending parade of meatloaf, exacerbated by her dried-out end piece, leads to an appeal for change, and it is agreed that they will go to a sushi restaurant the next day eschewing pork chop night for the first time since the Great Pig Scare of 87. <laughs> On a side note, Lisa achieves this by repeatedly asking Homer until he gives in. We'll see a lot more of this when Mount Splashmore is on the agenda mm -hmm. in just seven episodes' time. Good, good. Yeah, first use of pester power. So off they go to the Happy Sumo, a stereotype-filled corner of Springfield. <laughs> and we get some low-hanging jokes for a bit, peppered amongst which are some admittedly great karaoke performances. <laughs> and we get introduced to Master Chef. Not to be confused with Master Chef, the television show with Lloyd Grossman. Master Chef, the slightly retooled television show with Greg Wallace. Master Chef, the now defunct Indian restaurant on Liverpool's Renshaw Street. Or Master Chief off of Halo. I didn't know Master Chef had closed. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it's like a dessert place now. Oh, yeah, but there's loads of them. Yeah, oh, that's a bubble that's going to burst. Yeah. We also meet his apprentice, Toshiro, not to be confused with a properly fleshed-out character. An initially sceptical Homer is having the time of his culinary life and appears to have ordered everything on the menu, except fugu, so he orders that. Fugu is a poisonous blowfish that requires special preparation to swerve the danger of death, 
But Master Chef is busy in the back of Edna Krabappel's car, so Apprentice Chef Toshiro is left to prepare it, and Homer eats it with relish. When the Master returns, Homer is dispatched to the hospital, and Dr. Hibbert, who seems to have been in all of this latest run of episodes, tells him he has 24 hours to live. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, actually 22, but 24 sounds mm-hmm. more dramatic. At this stage, I pause to wonder, did anyone think Homer was actually going to die in this episode on first watch? Drop me a line, I'd be interested to know. <laughs> anyway, having consulted a handy pamphlet entitled So You're Going to Die, Homer gets out his Dumb Things I Gotta Do Today notepaper and makes a bucket list for his final day. Tom, you must have seen this one coming. Oh yeah, what's on it? What's on the list? Well, make list, crossed out. Yep. Uh, eat a hearty breakfast. Yep. Um, have a man-to-man with Bart. Yep. Listen to Lisa play her sax. Yep. Uh, I can't remember the order, but plant a tree, go hang gliding, tell off boss, uh, final dinner with family, beer with boys in the bar. That's all I can remember. You've done very, very well. There's only only four left. So there's make videotape for Maggie. Oh, yeah. Uh, make funeral arrangement, make peace with Dad. Uh, and be intimate with Marge. <laughs> there's also watch the sunrise, but I don't believe we see this written down. Some of the list is moot as he fails to awaken at 6am, instead sleeping through to 11.30am. <laughs> I love that. He rushes to his man-to-man with Bart, including the three little sentences that will get you through life. Cover for me. Oh, good idea, boss. And it was like that when I got here. I think I've used at least two of those today. (laughs) He also covers shaving, especially cut management. There's listening to Lisa play the sax, which initially depresses him until she breaks into When the Saints Go Over There. (laughs) Whilst borrowing a camcorder from Flanders to film a message for Maggie, for the first time, Homer begins to live like there's no tomorrow, promising to go to a barbecue he won't live to see. He then buries the hatchet with his father, which leads to the making up for lost time at the expense of Homer's last time, following which he is pulled over by the cops for speeding and has Barney bail him out. Late for a final dinner with his family, he just about has time to scream eat my shorts at Mr Burns as he goes past, knowing he'll never survive to return to work. Then we get, for the first time in a little while, a mo-crank call. This one is Seymour Butts, later the name of Fry's dog on Futurama. Most threatened response is, I'm going to pull your eyeballs out with a corkscrew. Homer is also there for a last beer, followed by another last beer. But Barney needs a tyre change on the way home, making Homer even more late. Dinner is cancelled as he and Marge get intimate for the last time, and she reads him a poem. Then we get my favourite line of the episode as he tucks his kids in one last time and can't think of any words more encouraging for Bart than, I like your sheets. (laughs) Homer goes to his fate in an armchair, listening to the Bible on cassette. But when Marge comes down the next morning, she finds him still alive and drooling. To the surprise of nobody, it was a false alarm and The Simpsons hasn't killed off a major character halfway through its second series. <laughs> Homer vows to live his life to the fullest, and we see him doing so. Slumped on the couch, watching Tempin bowling with a bag of pork rinds. Pork rinds light. Yeah. 
To be fair, he's probably uh, increasing his lifespan by going for the light option. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of a great little episode that turned out to be full of both funny and tender moments that I'd forgotten were even in it half the time. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 such a good episode, this one. I always get surprised that it's in series two because the writing's really fresh, the jokes are really densely packed in it, and the animation's really good. Yeah, we noticed that from the very, very first frame where uh, it's kind of looking out of the microwave at Homer and Marge. Yeah. That it's not... Um it's not as woolly around the edges as it usually is. Things aren't as sort of curvy and cartoony. Everything's, like, really well-defined. Yeah, everything's polished. And then there was that scene where he keeps eating the same piece of sushi over and over and over. Yeah, we which... like, well, maybe not, but... Um, yeah, but they must have done that deliberately, knowing, knowing yeah. that it would look funny. In general, though, it feels like it's taken a real leap in quality since the last episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even know who the writer was until you said it, so, so, so obviously she's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, so some character debuts for you. Um, Akira the Waiter, voiced here by George Takei, which means I am legally obliged to perform the following attempted impersonation. Oh my. (laughs) Although the character will be voiced by Hank Azaria in later episodes. Takei did have a couple of outings, but it is just Azaria doing a Takei impression for all the later ones. Yeah. Sad to report, there's not much to the character. He's just trotted out whenever a Japanese character is needed for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but several were needed for this episode. So we also have the sushi chef, as played by Sab Shimono, who's been in a ton of stuff from Samurai Jack, Seinfeld, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on television, through to Presumed Innocent, Southland Tales, and even Waterworld on the big screen. <laughs> The character does apparently appear again in both Season 2, Episode 17, Old Money, and Season 3, Episode 1, Stark Raving Dad. So we'll have to keep an eye out for those, as they're not far off. And I remember neither uh, appearance, to be frank. Okay, okay. Could be non-speaking. Could be non-speaking. There's also Apprentice Chef Toshiro, played by Joey Miyashima, who had previously been in The Karate Kid Part 2, and, of all things, The Tracy Ullman Show. Hmm. He went on to be in Con Air and High School Musical and High School Musical 3, but not, for some reason, High School Musical 2. Oh, okay. Reasons I would probably understand if I had any interest in researching that further. The hostess is played by Diane Tanaka, who had previously been in Matlock! (laughs) Nice. And Big Trouble in Little China, and would go on to be in Saved by the Bell, The College Years, and American Horror Story, amongst (laughs) many other things. What I hope I'm getting across here is that all three of these latter actors have got very long and varied uh, resumes. They've been all kinds of stuff, and and consistently uh, throughout their careers. And they've brought in Japanese actors to play Japanese characters. Yeah. Imagine that. It's a shame they forgot about that principle, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there we go. I probably don't have to mention that George Takei is best known for his role as Hikara Sulu, originally a con operator aboard the USS Enterprise, but eventually the captain of the USS Excelsior in the Star Trek original series and original continuity. We've also got a new as-themselves celebrity. Larry King, born Lawrence Harvey Zeger on the 19th of November 1933. He is a broadcast journalist who first came to wider notice hosting the appropriately titled Larry King Show, a nationwide phone-in show, 
and hosted his own nightly interview programme on CNN from 1985 to 2010. Mm, that's ludicrous. Though he's still on other networks now. So he's been extremely well known for a very long time. And I'd say The Simpsons probably played a blinder getting him on board at that stage. Mm. Um, Larry King Live continued after 2010, unthinkably, as Piers Morgan Live. But Larry continues on Hulu and RT America with Larry King now and politicking with Larry King. Is politicking a word? RT? What is in Russia Today? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is Russia in Russia Today, yeah. America, would you believe? <laughs> so, uh, so there we go. <laughs> that Donald Trump watches that. He has got uh, fiction chops too, having cameoed in Ghostbusters and B-Movie. And also appeared, and you know I've got to mention this, on WWE Monday Night Raw in a segment with Mike the Miz Mazanin and Kofi Kingston. And he's been married eight times to seven different women. Okay. I think it's an old divorced, 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 divorced a second time, divorced, divorced, alive! So it's not quite <laughs> as catchy as the Henry VIII version. Uh, no, no. In large part due to the lack of beheadings. Yeah, yeah. And also debuting here is Fugu. Mm-hmm. So there's some inaccuracies and some accuracies in this episode. I'm sure Tom will know most of these as a man of science. Uh, but I'm going to run through them for any interested listeners. Firstly, it is a puffer fish. Mm-hmm. Not much more to say on that. Uh, secondly, you do have to be trained to prepare it for consumption. Since 1958, fugu chefs have had to be licensed if they are to prepare and sell it. This includes practical and written tests, identifying the fish, and... Eating the fish yourself. It <laughs> sounds like a hell of a final exam. Since 2012, restaurants have been allowed to sell it if it was prepared and packaged by a licensed fugu chef off-premises. Mm. So that takes the financial sting out of employing a chef yourself. True. Certain parts of the fish are absolutely fine to eat, so they got that one right as well. Uh, the toxin is very present in the ovaries, liver, and other internal organs. As a side note, the ovaries can be rendered safe and edible by pickling. After three years, the toxin should have been eliminated, although thorough testing is required before sale. The only remaining question is why in the blue hell would you want to eat poisonous <laughs> fish ovaries when they take three years to prepare? Yeah. It's a bucket list thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is actually. Now, <laughs> yeah. just, 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 just get a t-shirt. I ate poisonous fish ovaries. From what I could see, the, the appeal of fugu was was as a, uh, a risk-taking thing. People would go to these restaurants and go, oh, I'll, I'll have the fugu, and then yeah. eat them, and yeah. then see if they died or not. And if they didn't, go, ha-ha, that was a jolly lark. Now, I know what everyone's asking. What was the UK number? No, no, I'm not getting off that easily. <laughs> now, how does the poison work? So, bear in mind I'm no toxicologist, so this is all pieced together, mainly from the wonderful sugar packet that is everyone's favourite, Wikipedia. <laughs> so remember, kids, citation needed. Mm-hmm. It's a tetrodotoxin, which is actually named for the order of fish that more generally carry it. Tetraodontiforms. Oh, got away with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good so far. Which, aside from puffers, also includes porcupine fish, trigger fish, and ocean sunfish. Although it's also found in some newts, snails, and the blue-ringed octopus, which itself is one of the tiniest and deadliest ocean creatures. It is a sodium channel blocker. It inhibits neurons by blocking the passing of sodium ions, which causes massive problems for the telephone exchange of the human body, the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Without the messages carried by sodium ions... Muscles stop flexing as they don't receive the nervous information they're expecting. So here's one very big part that the episode gets wrong. 
Symptoms generally occur within 30 minutes of ingestion, although to be fair, there could be a delay of up to four hours. And for a fatal dose, you're usually symptomatic within about a quarter of an hour. Now, this usually starts with pins and needles in the lips and tongues, progressing to the extremities, and then you can get, well, just about everything, really. Uh, respiratory problems, gastrointestinal horrors, mm -hmm. sweating, headaches, seizures, hypertension, the list goes on. Yeah, yeah. Patients will generally be paralysed, some will be comatose, others awake and lucid, which is probably even worse, until death occurs, usually within four to six hours. Not, it would seem, from an exploding heart, but simply <laughs> no. massive failures in all systems. Yeah. However, if a patient survives 24 hours, recovery without any residual effects will usually occur over a few days. Mm. So basically, the one thing you can't say about this kind of poisoning is that a patient has 24 hours to live. No. Fair dues, though, the writers needed a ticking clock for the episode to make any sense, and they did it in an engaging and interesting way. Mm. Worth noting, by the way, the researchers found that the tetrodotoxin enters the fugu system via its diet. It eats things that are infested with bacteria that is rich in the toxin. And because of this, farmers have started to produce apparently safe fugu simply by farming it and feeding it other things, keeping it away from the source of the toxin. Mm. So there we go. So yeah. now all, all of the fun value you might get out of eating fugu and wondering <laughs> whether you're going to die or not, um, you can't get anymore. Yeah. Well, you can, but you'd be a fool to. And I'm guessing it doesn't taste very nice, because otherwise, otherwise it would be more widespread. It would be more widely known. If, yeah. you, can, if you can farm it, like, like you can farm salmon, and salmon's everywhere, everyone loves salmon, but if the same was true for Fugu, then they'd go, oh, this stuff's delicious. This isn't something you just have as a bet. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it'd be everywhere, but it's not. So there we are. Yeah, I've not seen a McFugu burger yet. No, So no. Uh, even with the risks removed, there doesn't seem to be a great deal to take <laughs> up at this stage. And if you'd like to learn more, may I recommend This Podcast Will Kill You, an excellent podcast about viruses, diseases and the like, who did an episode on the possibility of a real zombie outbreak. It includes a sizable section on tetrodotoxin, which, it has been speculated, might have been used by voodoo priests and the like to simulate death and resurrection due to its paralytic properties. Mm -hmm. They make great cocktails too, so give them a listen. <laughs> Going to close with some did you knows? Yep. And then we'll get straight into the bone-crunching action. <laughs> did you know... Well, you, you probably know this one. The song that Bart and Lisa perform in the karaoke room is Theme from Shaft. Originally performed by Chef from South Park, otherwise known as Isaac Hayes from Scientology. Mm -hmm. It is taken from the soundtrack of the 1971 blaxploitation film, uh, Shaft. Yes. The character of Richie Sakai, who sings before them, is based on Simpsons producer Richard Sakai. Didn't have to change much for that one, really. Mm. Uh, he sings Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves, originally performed by Cher. Before Larry King took on the role of reader of the Talking Bible, it was offered to some guy called Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> which sounds like a made-up name to me, mm. um, but apparently he turned the role down. More excitingly, Sam Simon has apparently stated that the role was also offered to the chairman of the board himself, history's greatest actor, Mr. William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing, William Shatner reading the Old Testament. And it is just the Old Testament. Yeah. Book, which, is, which is an odd one. And that would have put Sulu and Kirk in the same episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> Speaking of Mr. King, he predicts that the greatest basketball team of all time, the San Antonio Spurs, 
will win the NBA title in 1991. Which means that for the second episode in a row, we have a sports prediction that was wide of the mark, as the Chicago Bulls would win their first title that year, starting an excellent run of six championships in eight years, with legend Michael Jordan leading all six title-winning squads. And finally, the name of the episode references One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, a book by Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. Right, have at it, Tom. Yes, okay, so, right, so straight from The Simpsons to Street Fighter 2. Yeah, this is going to be very different to what I usually talk about, so off we go. So, in 1987, the Japanese video game company Capcom released an arcade game called Street Fighter... Uh, that's it, Street Fighter 1. This was a pretty simple fighting game that saw the player take control of either the Japanese fighter Ryu or his American training partner and rival Ken an attempt to win a global fighting tournament, culminating in the final fight against Sagat in Thailand. In the denouement of this battle, Ryu gives Sagat a great scar across his chest with his dragon punch. And hopefully I've said Ryu right, because I know that's a huge bone of contention in Street Fighter lore, whatever. Okay, so the game featured a few things that were very innovative for the time. The original cabinet featured pressure-sensitive buttons for punching and kicking. The harder the player hit the buttons, the stronger the on-screen character's attack would be. However, many of these machines were recalled after several players managed to injure themselves hitting the buttons too hard. <laughs> I did see one of those once. Yeah. Um, it was it was inviting, but oh, even yeah. at the age of sort of eight or nine when I saw it, I thought, that's bound not to work yeah, properly. Yeah, well, they're about the size of a small cake, so... You know, who doesn't want to smash a small cake with their fist? That, it, yeah, it looks really satisfying. Capcom brought out a version with the pressure-sensitive buttons replaced with six normal boring buttons, one for each strength of attack. So free for punch, free for kick. The other main innovation was secret special moves. If the player pressed the right buttons at the right time, the character would perform a special move very different to the normal punches and kicks. Moving the joystick from down to away and kicking would perform a hurricane kick, or Tatsumaki Senpu Kaku in Japanese. Forward down, down forward would result in a dragon punch, or Shuriken, where the character does a jumping uppercut. Rolling down to forwards would see the character shoot a fireball, the famous Hadouken. Instructions on how to do these moves were not included on the cabinets, and players were encouraged to find them out themselves. So if two players were playing against each other and one knew how to do the special moves and the other didn't, then they would be at a significant advantage. The special moves are absolutely lethal in Street Fighter 1 as well. I oh, think right. because they're harder to pull off, even when you know what you're doing, they're, they're significantly harder to do than they are in uh, any of the uh, later Street Fighter games. Mm -hmm. um, and they knock off tons of energy. Right, right. So it's very much worth doing if you can. Okay. Okay. So... The original Street Fighter did not do that well. And it was a pretty poor game, to be honest. It was blocky, clunky, the characters felt unresponsive. The special moves had to be frame-perfect, which, you know, you've just mentioned. And it just wasn't that much fun to play. Technically, it was a two-player game, but two players could only fight each other once, with the winner going on to the player one game. Have I got that right? Yeah. 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 We could, well, if you put in more credits, you could technically fight as many times as you wanted. Right. Against each other. But then you, yeah, whoever wins goes on to the, the one player. Oh, I see, I see. Okay. 
and it was ported to the PC Engine, a relatively obscure console here in Europe, but popular in Japan, under the name Fighting Street for some reason. So despite this, Capcom pressed ahead with the development of the sequel. Street Fighter II The World Warrior was released in arcades in Japan on February 6th, 1991, just two weeks after One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish was first aired. The game was vastly superior to the original in every possible way. Gone was the clunkiness, and in its place came smooth, responsive controls. Playing it, you never felt cheated. The stronger the attack, the longer it took to do. So if you tried to land a heavy blow on your opponent and miss, you'd leave yourself open to attack. The special moves could leave you vulnerable if you miss too. For example, if you threw a Hadouken, your character froze for half a second. So if you missed and took a hit, you only had yourself to blame. Now, one of the features of the game was a total accident. If your character was in the middle of a slow, strong move, performing a special move would override it, cancel it out. This allowed you to hit your opponent with several strong attacks much quicker than intended in combination, and the combo was born. Now, that was something that would become a feature of later games, but completely accidental in the, in the first Street Fighter 2. As well as being able to play as Ryu or Ken, who were still essentially clones of each other, the game allowed you to play as one of six other fighters from around the world, all conforming to stereotypes from a Japanese perspective, with some being more worrying, I believe we'd say problematic these days, uh, than others. So the first is Eddie Honda, a Japanese sumo wrestler whose famous 100 hand slap can be pulled off simply by quickly mashing a punch button over and over again. He's entered the tournament to prove to the world the power of sumo. And each fighter has their own stage, and Honda's is Japanese stereotype squared. He's a sumo wrestler, so of course he fights in a sumo ring, but the sumo ring is inside a bathhouse. I don't like to think about how slippy that floor is. <laughs> and most of the fighters are barefoot. Yeah, yeah. But having a sumo ring in a bathhouse would be like having a British character fighting in a boxing ring, but the boxing ring is inside a fish and chip shop. <laughs> oh, can we make that happen? Street oh. Fighter 6? Yes. But on top of all of that, the bathhouse also contains neon signs, you know, which would be a nightmare with all that water around. But, uh, but, but, but it's like, there's a lot of neon signs in Japan, so let's chuck that in his stage as well. But, you know, it's, it's excusable because it's a Japanese game. So if they want to so do that, then, you know, fair enough. Okay, so our next character to talk about is Blanca, or Blanca, however you want to say it. And he's a really weird one. So he's from Brazil, he's green, and he's got the ability to electrocute people. His backstory is that he was involved in a plane crash in the Amazon jungle when he was a baby. He then had an encounter with electric eels that caused him to mutate into a kind of electric Incredible Hulk. He's green because he needed to blend in in the jungle. If you complete the game with Blanca, his mum turns up and recognises him via an anklet he wears. She is supposed to have given him that anklet when he was a baby, so an anklet that fits a huge jungle beast man also fits a baby. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. Which I believe he also has two of. Yes, yes. So he managed to find a matching one in the jungle. Hey. Blanca was the first character I ever played Street Fighter 2 as. Um, I spent a long time sort of watching the, the demos and seeing all these this diverse cast of characters, which was really eye-catching with all the different kind of... Uh, uh, 
moves and kind of completely different fighting styles. And I thought, yeah, I'll I'll go for Blanca. And I got absolutely got my uh, my butt handed to me uh, <laughs> by the computer, which was even worse. It wasn't mm. even like I was playing another player. Um, but yeah, so I have fond memories of Blanca. Nice, nice. So next character is Guile, the quintessential American soldier. He's a major in the Air Force, and he's entered the tournament to bring down the main bad guy, who we'll get to, and avenge the death of his friend Charlie, who was akin to Principal Skinner's friend Johnny. He wears his and Charlie's dog tags, has tattoos of the American flag, although technically they're the wrong way round, if you read up on your American flag code, and he has a flat-top haircut you could set your watch to. He fights at an Air Force base with a huge jet fighter in the background. The Johnny Unitas of uh, Street Fighter 2. Uh, yeah, definitely, Nick. Yeah, definitely. So next up is Chun-Li, the only female character in the original game. She hails from China, and like Guile, she's out to avenge the death of someone killed by the main bad guy, only this time it's her father. She has the most ridiculous thighs in video game history, and that's saying something. I mean, you know, they're like tree trunks. She's a master of Kempo fighting techniques and is particularly adept at kicking. Her special moves include a lightning kick, achieved by mashing the kick button in a similar way to Eddie Honda's 100 hand slap. She also has the most gravity-defying move in the game, the spinning bird kick. She jumps in the air, turns upside down, and spins round and round while kicking in a splits-like fashion. Her stage is a fairly plain street in China that features people going past on bikes and a guy forever choking a chicken. No, that's not a euphemism. <laughs> Uh, her backstory as well is that she's a, an Interpol agent who oh, is yes. uh, avenging her father's death at the hands of the, the big bad, who again mm-hmm. we will come to. Yep, yep. So next up is Zangief, and here's where the modern history tie sort of comes in. So he's a huge bear wrestler from the USSR, which in February 1991 was still just about in existence. It was kind of fraying at the edges, quite seriously, but it was def- it was definitely there. So, being a wrestler, all of his moves are close combat, and his spinning pile driver is probably the hardest move in the game to pull off. But, if you complete the game with him, Mikhail Gorbachev turns up, (laughs) and they celebrate by doing a Cossack dance, where Zangief exclaims, Mr. President, you dance very well. But in later versions, this is changed to, Mr. Ex-President, you dance very well. So it was nice that they were historically aware to you know change it when when events changed i still can't really believe they got away with that 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 seems like a, a bizarre depiction of uh, a, a sort of the head of what was essentially the bad guys to us in the cold war uh, yeah so, but i don't know what uh, japan's relationship with russia was like at the time um hmm, good question actually i suppose we had spitting image but uh, <laughs> uh yeah so so, yeah, I don't think anyone was really that fussed. I mean, no one would pick Zangief anyway. He's one of the hardest characters to win the game with. Well, my friend Jamie, who's a, uh, a long-time listener... Hello, Jamie, if you're there. <laughs> um, uh, he, he always used to pick Zangief because he was actually able to do the spinning pile job. Uh, one of the very yeah. few people I knew who could. Yeah, um, yeah. So and when you can do that, the, the reach on that character is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can use him to, to your advantage. But I was, always, I was rubbish as Zangief. I think most people were really it was a very niche character he was he was so finally on the roster of the eight original playable characters is dalsim and to be honest i don't know where to start with dalsim so he's from india and a master of yoga 
a traditionally pacifist activity, but for some reason Dalsim has turned it into a fighting style. I think his backstory is that he's entered this fighting tournament to provide money for his village or something? That's the one, yeah. Something like that. Anyway. So he's so good at it that he's able to stretch his arms and legs, allowing him to attack from long range. He can also breathe fire, which is attributed to him eating hot curries. That's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He also wears a ring of skulls around his neck. Something more common in voodoo than yoga. Something that you'd expect to find in a shop that sells frozen yoghurt laced with potassium benzoate. That's bad. Exactly. In some versions of his backstory, uh, those are the skulls of children who had starved to death in his village. um, That he wears for remembrance. Um, Wow, that's grisly. Yeah. 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 Again, not quite sure what to say about that one. <laughs> anyway, so so all in all, Dalsim is a combination of hyper stereotypes and just plain weirdness. And I really don't want. I really don't know what to think about him. But you know, as as you know, we're kind of averse to discussing Asian stereotypes on this show. So uh, so I think I'll move on. Well, one thing I, I do want to mention about Dalsim is there is one version of the game in which he is the best character. And that's the Commodore Amiga home port. Um, the Amiga had to take certain liberties with uh, the characters, including having the Dragon Punch go straight up rather than uh, across and up, okay. um, which weakened a lot of the characters to the extent that to him with his stretching ability, and since nobody could sort of do a, a rising diagonal attack against him, yeah. uh, actually became an overpowered character. Oh, okay. It's the only version of the game in which I believe that's ever happened. If you were daft enough to try and play Street Fighter on, what was it, Commodore 64? Commodore Amiga. Oh, Commodore Amiga. Yeah. Although it was um, ported to the Spectrum and C64 as well. It was, and the Game Boy, for some reason. Yeah. It's, it's like, why? <laughs> anyway. So, after defeating the rest of the playable characters, four boss characters appear. An American boxer, a Spanish narcissist, Sagat from the first game, and finally the head honcho supreme villain. Their names differ depending on where you are in the world. In the original Japanese game, the boxer is called M. Bison, and is an obvious pastiche of Mike Tyson. Not the first time that Mike Tyson appears in a video game, of course. The Spanish narcissist is called Bullrog, and the final bad guy, Vega. However, with the American release, they feared getting sued. So the names of three of the bosses were rotated. The boxer M. Bison became Bullrog, Bullrog became Vega, and finally the head honcho boss man became M. Bison. Bison heads up the shady Shadaloo crime syndicate from his base in Thailand. I've also heard it called Shadow Law, which is possibly a bit scarier. He can use a technique called Psycho Power, which allows him to punch harder and sometimes turn himself into a human torch. He acts as the primary antagonist, and many of the playable characters have some sort of vendetta against him. If a player beats him, they beat the game and they get to see their character's ending. The final battle with M. Bison inspired a famous hoax. And as a sceptic, I love a good hoax. So, at the end of each battle, the winner taunts the loser. The character Ryu would sometimes taunt, You must defeat Shen Long to stand a chance. This mysterious and rather puzzling phrase sparked off the imaginations of curious gamers. What, or indeed who, was Shen Long? Was he Ryu and Ken's mentor, and if so, was it possible to access him in the game? The worldwide search for Shen Long intensified when an article was published in the February edition of Electronic Gaming Monthly. 
Complete with screenshots, it gave instructions on how to access this hidden character. All you had to do was this. Pick Ryu, then beat all of the characters without taking any damage. Then when you get to the final boss, go through 10 rounds without taking any damage yourself or damaging him. If you do all this, Sheng Long will appear, throw in Bison off the screen and battle you in a fight to the death. And EGM left plenty of hints that should have set alarm bells ringing. First off, the task is so Herculean as to be practically impossible. I think someone tried to see if they could do it with an emulator and mm. uh, save states and a and a TAS, a tool assisted speedrun. Yeah. And they just couldn't do it. It's just not possible. So second, the instructions were submitted by a reader called W.A. Stokins of Fuldigen H.A. And there is no state that begins with H.A. So, so it's wasted tokens of Fuldigen Ha. So... Finally, the article was directly above a call for readers to submit their ideas for April Fool's pranks to appear in the next issue. So despite all this, some gamers didn't get the hint and wasted many tokens eh, trying to get Shenglong to appear. So who or what is Shenglong? Unfortunately, the actual answer is kind of mundane. Japanese games often suffer from translation issues when given an English release. I'm thinking all your base are belong to us. Mm. Remember that meme from probably about 20 years ago? <laughs> and Street Fighter 2 was no exception. The phrase Shuryuken was translated to Sheng Long in Chinese pinyin. This was inadvertently retained for the English translation of the original arcade game. Hence the mysterious, you must defeat Sheng Long to stand a chance. In the Super Nintendo version, this is corrected to, you must defeat my Dragon Punch to stand a chance. Which makes far more sense. Yes. Although, the whole thing seems to have inspired two later changes uh, in Street Fighter games. Mm -hmm. uh, in Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, uh, if you complete certain conditions, then get to the final fight against Bison. Bison is killed by Akuma before the fight can begin. And mm. you fight Akuma instead as a super boss. Um, and also, uh, Ryu and Ken's actual master, Gukan. Uh, is a playable character in Street Fighter 4 who's um, accessed by doing something ridiculous with winning a lot of games and mm -hmm. taking not much damage and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so eventually, you know, that, that kind of paid off. And don't even get me started on Reptile in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I didn't even plan to talk about Mortal Kombat, but you've just reminded me there was a similar hoax I remember growing up because with, with Mortal Kombat, it came out just after Street Fighter, and it was obviously trying to jump on the Street Fighter bandwagon, but with live motion capture actors. And it was famous for being very, very gory at the time. So, you know, tamed by today's standards, but you could do finishing moves which involved ripping people's heads off and setting them on fire and whatever else. And with the Super Nintendo release, Nintendo, for some reason, was really, really conscious about having a family-friendly image. So they allowed Mortal Kombat, but really turned down the violence. So the blood was replaced by sweat, and a lot of the more violent finishing moves were replaced. So, for example, in the arcade game, Kano's finishing move is he tears out his opponent's heart in a kind of Kalamar type of way. And in the Super Nintendo version, it's explained that he's taking his opponent's soul out, and you don't see anything happening. Yeah. Um, but there was a hoax that said you could unlock 
a secret gore mode by doing certain things. And one of the things you needed to do was, well, the code would only work on the American version of the game. And American Super Nintendo games used heavier plastic. So to get it to work on a British console, you had to tape a penny to the top of the cartridge. I remember uh, I remember this. I had that issue. I had the issue afterwards. And there was a, a letter that had come in that said, I knew this was a hoax. Uh, what's taping a penny to the top of the cartridge meant to do? Make it fly. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. But, but all- it's a shame, though, because the Super NES version of Mortal Kombat was actually quite good. The only, the only mm. thing that was, was lacking from it was the original gore, mm-hmm. um, which kind of made you feel, in a weird way, a bit shallow for wanting the original <laughs> gore to be there. I suppose but, so. But it's part of the arcade experience, so yeah. you know, it's, it's simply what you're expecting. Yeah, yeah. And one more thing to, to say about Shane Long. There is a Premier League football player called Shane Long. <laughs> and, when, and whenever he plays, I just like to cheekily tweet, the other team must defeat Shane Long to stand a chance. I've got to say, I love Shane Long as well. He was <laughs> so good for West Brom. So good. And we never used him as much as we should have oh, I, d- I didn't even know he played for West Brom. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, uh, with us at the same time as Lukaku was there on loan. Oh, this is um, a few so years was, ago. Uh, yeah, it was a great sort of uh, big guy, little guy, striker combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lukaku and Shane Long, they really wouldn't have stood a chance. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about music. Now, there are lots of technical innovations in Street Fighter 2, and there's one piece of music in particular that's rather noteworthy. At first, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go all muso here. First, a brief explanation of musical time signatures. Now, a time signature tells you how many beats are in each bar and how long each beat is. By far, the most common time signature is 4-4, also known as common time. So that's four quarter notes per bar. It's the simplest, easiest driven there is. Just one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Pick a pop song, chances are it's in 4-4. A kind of a variation of 4-4 is 2-2. So two half notes per bar. So one, two, one, two. So it takes the same length as 4-4, but you're counting two beats instead of four. And an example of a song that's in this time signature, weirdly enough, is Jingle Bells. Yes, which yeah, that we, makes sense. You don't think it is, but, but it is. Another relatively common time signature is 3-4. So three quarter notes per bar. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's also known as waltz time, and when I start counting it, I, it immediately makes me think of Donna Immobile from Rigoletto, a tune that's been appropriated by football fans. One, two, three. Paolo Di Canio, Paolo Di Canio, or your ground's too big for you, your ground's too big for you. Am I really singing football chants in an operatic style with this? I am, In my I? kitchen. Yes. yes, yes. What a world. So here's a notable piece of video game music in 3-4. Let's see if you can recognise it. I should. My guess would be linked to the past. Something snazzy, anyway. It is something snazzy, but what it is, it's the SNES version of SimCity, 
the intro. Oh, right, okay. Now, that music, that... You know how you have some pieces of music that just immediately put you in a certain mood? That music always makes me relaxed. Because I hear that, I just think back to when I was a kid and go, right, I've got a couple of hours, I'm just going to play SimCity, I'm not going to kill any aliens or beat anyone up, I'm just going to build a nice city with some green spaces and parks and airports and seaports and whatever else and I'm just gonna have a lovely relaxing time. So there we are. So there's a piece of video game music that's in Free uh, 4. It's also used in a few pop songs including Bloody Saviour's Day by Cliff Bloody Richard. <laughs> one, two, three. One, two, three. Open your eyes on Saviour's Day. <laughs> yes. Okay. So moving on to something more complex, there is compound time. The idea with compound time is that it comes in threes. So a classic compound time signature is six, eight. So six, eight notes per bar. So counting it goes one, two, three, two, two, three, one, two, three, two, two, three. Uh, you can also have nine, eight and twelve, eight. Twelve, eight is quite common. It's sort of the compound time equivalent of common time. So again, one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three. So a good example of the song in compound time is A Design for Life by the Manic Street Preachers. Right. Yeah. So, with all that in mind about time signatures, see if you can work out the time signature of this piece of music. It's Sagat's theme from Street Fighter 2. For the rhythm, pay particular attention to the snare drum. So here we go. What time signature is Sagat's theme in? Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. It is. So I was trying to work out the time signature myself, and Google did not give a definitive answer. I thought it was 5-4 for a while, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2... Anyway. To get a better answer, I asked a chap called Milton Mermicades, whose name I hope I've got right. Uh, he's got a PhD in music and is head of composition at Surrey University. He's also spoken on a panel at QED and composed its theme tune, which is how I know him. I asked him about Saget's theme, and this was his conclusion. And he spent at least a night listening to it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, which he enjoyed, apparently. He said that the main time signature is in 11-8, with the two stings, you know, the... In 13-8. Okay. Okay. So if that wasn't complicated enough, the bass and percussion are counted differently. So the percussion is counted 4-4-3, four, four, and the bass is counted 5-6. So if this was being played live, and good luck to anyone who tries, 
the drummer would be going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And the bass player would be going one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. Shall we just try that? Just you you do the four, four, three, and I'll do the five, six. Okay, right. Can't even work out when to start. Yeah. Um, is it is it a four four beat counting? Shall we just shall we just have a three beat counting? Okay. One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and I I got it wrong straight away. Shall we give it one more go? Okay. Okay. One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, three. Oh, that's making my head hurt. Oh, that is horrible. Yeah. So with all of that going on, just remember I said listen to the snare drum earlier. And the snare drum starts off off beat. But it wraps around and it becomes on beat again. So you end up tapping along to the snare drum um, when before it was off beat and you couldn't. And it's like, ah, uh, it is right. And this is in a video game. This is extraordinary. So when you tell me that this this was composed separately to the rest of the game's music? Yes, yes. I I I, I can't remember the name of the composer, but the original composer did the majority of the music and then and then she left and someone else came in and they they put together Sagat's theme. Uh yeah. So so, so yeah, but what I love about Sagat's theme is is that I had to ask a <laughs> I, I had to ask the head of composition at the university to try and work out what to, I was expecting them to go to, to go, yeah it's a weird time signature, but yeah it's all it's all thirteen eight or something. Not it's that and it's this and it's that somewhere. Ugh. So that is pretty much all I've got to say about the original Street Fighter 2, originally released just two weeks after One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Blue Fish. I had to trip one over fish, it once. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, One Fish. <laughs> so, of course, the game had a few sequels and even a terrible movie starring Kylie Minogue and Jean Claude Van Damme made after it. But I don't know if I want to talk about the Street Fighter 2 movie, it was just too bad. There was a, I did read a fascinating article about why it went quite so wrong. Um, and a lot of it was pressures on pressures on the filmmakers from Capcom to feature as many characters as possible. Right. Um, whereas the, the original vision for the film was to uh, show a few characters in detail. So I think they had seven characters. I'm not sure which ones. I assume uh, mm. Ryu and Ken would have been the two of the main ones. You know, Gaal, Chun-Li, M. Bison. These are all people who have you know, stories that you can yeah. really go for. But um, but Capcom was very keen for them to feature all 12 of the original characters. And then Super Street Fighter 2, the new challengers came out, which mm-hmm. featured four more characters. And on top of that, there were more characters going into the film that Capcom wanted to feature in a spin-off arcade game, which bizarrely, Street Fighter 2, the movie, the arcade game... Yeah, why? It's possibly the best thing to come out of the Street Fighter 2 <laughs> movie. And... Even more bizarrely, features motion captured actors like Mortal Kombat. Oh yeah, it's it's just it's just it's just mind blowing. You 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 you'd make a game of a movie that's based on a game. There was also what um, one of the uh, fight scene directors was apparently an old hand on westerns, 
uh, but had never played Street Fighter 2 before. So I looked at all these uh, all these things that kind of the director had laid out, like um, Ryu throws a fireball and, you know, um, Chun-Li does the spinning bird kick. I looked at them and went, that's not real fighting. No. No, he'll just punch him and hit him with a chair. It's- oh, yeah. Oh, sh- shockingly bad. Shocking. So anyway, so the first sequel uh, of the video game Street Fighter 2 not the game of the movie, the actual proper... Anyway, uh, was Street Fighter II Champion Edition. And this version allowed you to play as the boss characters, which included Enslaving the World, if you completed the game with M. Bison. So shortly after this, Street Fighter II Turbo was released. And it allowed the player to increase the speed of the game and it added a few new special moves. I think this was largely in response to the number of hacked cabinets that were coming out that um, featured wacky special moves and, and <laughs> huge amounts of speed and so on and so forth. Okay. You'd often see Street Fighter 2 Rainbow Edition, uh, for instance, which was just a game that had been illegally modded. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, but part of the, the, the happy accident coming out of that was that Capcom decided, oh, yeah, could be a bit faster, I guess. <laughs> In September 1993, Capcom brought out Super Street Fighter 2 The New Challenges. And this version featured four new characters... They were DJ from Jamaica, who entered the tournament to find the perfect rhythm. I don't have a huge amount to say about DJ, because, you know, he's got the you know, big mouth full of very white teeth. It's... I have one fact about DJ, which uh-huh. is that it was the only Street Fighter 2 character that was created by Capcom USA, rather oh, okay. than uh, Capcom Japan. That's interesting. Okay. It would, might, might account for the, the slight difference in art style between him and the mm-hmm. other characters. Okay, fair enough. Uh, there's also Fei Long, who's from Hong Kong, but he's he's just Bruce Lee. Yeah. They don't even try and disguise it. He he is just Bruce Lee. In the same way as Mortal Kombat's Liu Kang is just Bruce Lee. Yeah, it's, pretty much. You know, yeah, but this is this is Bruce Lee. Same haircut, same same scars in some promotional artwork. Same same puffy pants. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's shameless. Yeah. Absolutely shameless. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So there's also T-Hawk, who's a huge Mexican whose homelands have been torched by bison. Don't have a huge amount to say about him either. No, no. And, there's, and there's also Cammy, who's the first British character in the game. And her voice acting is incredibly posh. Um, but unfortunately, she doesn't fight in a boxing ring in a fish and chip shop. No, no. Instead, she appears to fight in what appears to be a Japanese romanticisation, which again is definitely a word, of a Scottish Highland castle, complete with, good lord, what is happening in there? <laughs> Seriously, check it out. There's Aurora Borealis in Cami State, which is meant to be in England. And it's like, that's not England. She should be fighting on a council estate or something. That would be far more realistic. <laughs> so, since then, the Street Fighter series has continued, and the list of titles is as long as your arm. But I think we better stop there before we get carried away. Yes, reluctantly, <laughs> reluctantly, we shall stop there. Um, but yeah, Street Fighter Two revolutionised uh, my sort of... I was already a very heavy video gamer at the time that that came out, and for me that was... All my Christmases come at once, essentially. Mm-hmm. Me and my mates playing that in the arcade, then when it came out on the snares of the Mega Drive, um, yeah, great times. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. great times. Yeah, and, 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 and it was... It was a very, very fair way 
of having a two-player game because there was there was no way of not cheating, but but no way of getting like a huge advantage because mm. all the characters were differently weighted. So so some were faster, some were stronger, some had long range, some had short range. But they were all so well balanced that there wasn't one character that you picked and would win every time. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Even when the bosses became playable, yeah, that was one worry about making the bosses playable as they did in Championship Edition. Is is just are these four characters are they uh, legitimately better than all the other characters? And the answer is no. They're no. just harder when you play against them when you play the computer because they're the later ones and therefore they have to have better AI. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I always felt sorry for Bullrog, the boxer. Yeah. Because he has this tiny little jump. So if you're playing against a, so if you're playing with him against any character that has any sort of projectile attack, then you then you're screwed. That's that's the only character who's who's at a real significant disadvantage. But again, he provides a challenge. If you think you're really, really good at Street Fighter 2 and you're playing against someone who isn't so good, mm. then you just play as Bullrog and, you know, give yourself that handicap. I was thinking about this probably a bit too much yesterday. Um, when In the original Street Fighter 2, if you just kind of... If you were playing that for the first time, the character select screen, it only has eight people, there's only eight locations on the map. You don't know that anything's going to happen after you've beaten the selectable roster. And then you fight Balrog. Mm. So I, I feel like kind of... A, he's coasting a little bit on shock value as the first boss. But B, it's almost there's almost a little dip in his AI. So kind of, he's a bit easier because they want you to see that there's things after that as well. Mm. Um, and then um, Balrog or Vega, depending on what side of the Pacific you're on... Um, is rock hard and the oh, normal yes. service is resumed. Yeah, but, definitely, definitely. But yeah, I do wonder whether he's been been slightly nerfed just to to, <laughs> to give you that sort of give him some beatability so that mm. you kind of realise that there's more than one boss in the game. Yeah, yeah. There's one thing I like about the stage select screen in that you have a map of the world and you pick who you're playing and then you see a little plane fly mm. from one country to another. But what I like is that the map is. I don't know if this is a word, but Japanocentric. Yeah. So Japan is right in the middle of the map, and you know, coming from uh, coming from the UK, everything's European centric. So so Europe is always right in the middle of the map, and Japan is like you know that's why it's called the Far East because it's in the Far East of the map. Whereas you got a Japanese game, Japan right in the middle of the map, and it's you know it it, it can it can take you back a little bit if you've never seen it before. But then you remember. Well, the Earth is just, you know, a sphere. Well, it's slightly squashed, there's a fancy word for it, but, you know, so, so, you know don't write in just because I've called the Earth a sphere, please. <laughs> um, isn't it donut-shaped? Isn't that the, the, uh, the big trend in flat-earthing now? Um, it's something like that, or a cosmic egg or something. Well, well, well actually, we know from the day-to-day that the world is a cube, because fact times importance equals news. Yes. That's the shape of the Earth. What on earth was, was I talking about? Um, oh, yeah, where, where, where countries are. So, yeah, where you stick the middle of, of, a, of a map is, is, is really completely arbitrary and yeah. done for political reasons. And you often aren't aware of that until you see it, until you see a Japanese map and go, oh, yeah, why wouldn't you put Japan in the middle? That works. East and West are very subjective. It Absolutely. It really depends on the location of the person. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So, with that, I think we're uh, I think we're done. Yes, on yes. This, uh, this probably bumper edition, I would have thought. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Norm- normal service will be resumed next week, but I was really struggling to find a historical event because 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 it appeared that nothing happened in late January 1991 apart from stuff which I've already talked about. So the singing revolution was in full swing. We we were in the aftermath of the Gulf War, but that's about it. Um, so yeah, normal service will be resumed next week because I've got more actual historical stuff to talk about. And for some reason, you wouldn't take my suggestion of talking about Royal Rumble 1991, no. um, in which uh, just just to bring everybody up to speed, uh, Sergeant Slaughter uh, cheated to win the WWF World Title from the Ultimate Warrior uh, <laughs> since the Gulf War was at its height. Yes. So of uh, course, of course. There we go. So don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org, and check out the number one's playlist on Spotify. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, preferably a five-star one, anywhere you possibly can. Yep, that would be lovely, especially on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.